Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning where we could gather together to worship you. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have made yourself known through your word, that you impart your Holy Spirit to us, to dwell within us, to bring the word of God to bear on our hearts and our souls. And we pray that this morning for our time together, whether that be down here or that be for our kids upstairs. Lord, I pray that we would just be amazed at all of the ways that you provide, all of the ways that you work, all of the ways that you ensure that your promises and your purposes will go forward, whether that be, as we're talking here, uh, with the provision of the Holy Spirit, or whether that be upstairs with them, with you practically providing a wife for Isaac. Lord, I pray that we would delight in you and in all that you've done in us and for us and through us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21 this morning. You can find it on page 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Now, this morning we're sort of coming to a climax. We're coming to... um, the pinnacle of a larger discussion through the book of Ephesians. We still have more to go. That We're still working towards resolution and all that. But if you think about it, we're ramped up, and now we've kind of hit that pinnacle of the book of Ephesians. And from there, we're just going to settle. We're going to resolve. We're going to end from all of that. We've, we've been working our way through Ephesians for a long time. And one of this, these big themes that come up over and over and over again is the Christian walk, our daily pattern of lives, the way that we were meant to live. You see, being a Christian is not simply about us choosing to believe a certain set of data, whether that be doctrinal statements or even in the historical Jesus, though that is absolutely true and necessary. That's not what makes us a Christian. Our Christian walk starts with God doing a work within us. That God makes us alive. God changes our hearts. He changes our affections. He gives us new desires, new longings that where before we wanted to live and follow the course of the world, we wanted to follow Satan, we wanted to follow just our own passions, whatever they might be. Now we find ourselves with these desires to know and love and follow Christ. We want to live for Him. We want to display the glory of God and His work within us in all of these new and amazing ways. And so we walk in the, the, the good works which God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. We walk in love. We walk in unity. We walk in gentleness and affection. We pursue maturity, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters around us. And so we no longer want to walk as unbelievers do in darkness in, in sin and in immorality, but now we want to, in fact, expose the darkness in our hearts and in the world around us to the light of Christ. We actually want to see it transformed because we're given that amazing promise that as we walk as children of the light, as we bring the light of the gospel to bear upon darkness, that it will be transformed into light. And we saw that that takes a lot of wisdom. Right? And so we've kind of come to this, this grand conclusion in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, that if we are going to walk this way, if our lives are going to display the glory of God and what he has done in our hearts, it takes wisdom, 
We must walk in wisdom that we saw last time, and we must walk in the Holy Spirit. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Boy, that's a big, big topic, is it not? It's a huge issue. There are lots of misunderstandings about what that even means. And so this morning, we're going to try to clear that up a little bit with the time we have together. We must be filled with the Spirit. And and let me just tell you what the text says, and then we'll read it, okay? But Spirit-filled Christians, what we're going to see this morning is that, first of all, they grow in assurance and maturity in Christ. Second, they sing from their hearts to God and to each other. Third, they give thanks constantly and for everything. And fourth, they submit themselves to Christ and his church. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit according to this text. Okay, now that's a big, long description. So let me just concisely summarize what this text is going to tell us to do. Okay, and then we'll unpack it more and more and more. But the main idea of this text is simply this. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's look at it. And let's pray as we read that the Lord would open our eyes and change our hearts so that we might receive this and walk in faith. That we might walk worthy of our calling. So please read with me. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I do need to say this right up front because it has plagued me throughout this entire week. I have enough content here to preach five sermons. Well, let's think about it. Do not get drunk with wine. Where are we? Champaign-Urbana, right? We've got a bunch of young college students in and around us. You think we don't need to address that a little bit more specifically? Then there's the whole be filled with the Holy Spirit. Any confusion about what that means, right? Do we need to clear that up at all? Well, there's two, right? Then you've got this whole addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Boy, worship, right? Corporate singing. I'm glad that that Caleb did some work on that a couple of weeks ago, kind of free my burden up a little bit, but that's another sermon in and of itself. Then you've got giving thanks always, And for everything, (laughs) everything, okay, that's a sermon, right? And then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Boy, that's that's an easy one, right? No one has any issues about that at all. So you see there's five sermons there, right? Five sermons. And I'm doing it in one. All right, I'm I'm having mercy on you guys. I'm having mercy on my Bible. My this page of of just chapter four. Four and five in my Bible, I've spent so much time on it that it's all wrinkled and pruny and now ripping. Okay, so <laughs> I need to move on. <laughs> but uh, what we see in this text, if you just look at it, there are two commands that are given there. There's the whole do not be drunk with wine. 
And then there's be filled with the Holy Spirit. And those are meant to contrast one another, right? They're meant to offset one another. We're to learn more about the second because of the first, right? So we're looking at that. And then there are five participles, that is five I-N-G words, right? And what they do is describe the result of being filled with the Spirit. So you've got that whole addressing one another. You've got singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting. Right? All the result, all the byproduct, all the outflow of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So then the main idea has to be be filled with the Spirit. And that's what we're going to try to talk about. And I'm going to try to do justice to all the other five things that we could talk about. So with that being said, the first point is that Spirit-filled Christians grow in assurance and maturity. Right? We are to be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we grow in assurance and maturity. Being filled with the Spirit does not mean that we have ecstatic emotional experiences. It's not that time where you're just like singing to the Lord and you just feel wonderful. You feel amazing, almost like a new, like you've been filled with something that's outside of yourself. That's not what this means, this phrase means. Nor does it mean that you have to have some baptism in the Spirit and so you're now speaking in tongues or or laughing or crying hysterically. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that you bark like dogs or that you fall on the ground slain in the Spirit. And I say all of that because those are common misconceptions about what that phrase means. People actually believe that. But those are unbiblical ideas. If we're going to understand what the phrase means, we can't take it to mean whatever we want it to mean or just you know, to, to celebrate some, some emotional experience we might have or whatever that is. We, we need to see what does God mean by that and then see our lives patterned after that, right? Now, if you just did a simple search of the Bible, for that phrase, two phrases, right? Be filled with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, or full of the Spirit. What you see is that in the Old Testament, that meant one or two things. It meant one of two things. Okay, first of all, either people were equipped by the Holy Spirit to perform a particular function. So, for example, Bezalel in Exodus was filled with the Holy Spirit with creativity, with wisdom, with craftsmanship, so that he could create the materials and build the tabernacle. Or you have Joshua, for example, who was full of the Holy Spirit so that he might lead God's people into the promised land. Right? So they're given a particular function. That's what it meant. Or second option is that they were filled with the Spirit in order to proclaim God's word. Makes sense, right? So, for example, Micah... Chapter 3, verse 8, Micah declares, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. Why? To declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. So that's what it meant in the Old Testament to be filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit. Now what about the New Testament? What about... What about Luke? What about Acts, man? They, they, Luke is talking about that stuff all the time. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. So, okay, let's deal with that. Well, first of all, you mean one of three things, right? First of all, either people were filled with the Holy Spirit at their conversion, 
When they first came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they received the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. See that? Acts chapter 9, verse 17, talking about Saul, now Paul, right? His conversion, or Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter, 5, or chapter 1, verse 5. They were filled with the Spirit at their conversion. Or a second reason, or second, second possibility. They were equipped and emboldened by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. They were proclaiming the truth about God, God's plan of salvation in the midst of oppression, in the midst of hostility, in the midst of persecution. And so the Holy Spirit emboldened them just as Jesus promised that he would, that they would be filled in the Spirit and know what to say at the given time when they stood in trial, when they stood before those who hated them and hated their message. God would embolden them through the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. Okay, so that's option number two. Option number three, in the New Testament, we have those men uh, that are mentioned in particular, though it's men and women, full of the Holy Spirit. And they showed particular faith and Christian maturity as they depended upon the Holy Spirit in their lives to lead and to serve and to shepherd God's people. So, for example, Acts chapter 6, you have the appointment of the deacons. And the elders said, the apostles said, listen, we need to devote ourselves to the word of God and prayer. So find us men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And they set five guys apart, right? These men, gifted by the Lord, mature in their faith, showing that they are wise, that they are mature, that they are able to administer uh, the responsibilities of a deacon. And that also would include shepherding and all of that other stuff. So Far from miraculous gifts or mindless emotional experiences, being filled with the Spirit describes a person who has been sealed for salvation. They have been given a new life. They've been emboldened to proclaim the gospel so as to grow and to lead others to maturity in Christ. And I dare you to find that phrase to say anything other than that. Because you won't. I did it this week. <laughs> I looked over and over and over and over again. But you know, that's exactly what we've seen the Holy Spirit doing. That's, that's what we've seen the Holy Spirit working to do through Ephesians so far. If we just think about the book of Ephesians, how we see the Holy Spirit working. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and seals us for the day of redemption, according to chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4. The Holy Spirit is our assurance, our guarantee that we will receive a heavenly inheritance in Christ. But in the meantime, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us a spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the knowledge of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that imparts to us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus right here and right now. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us access to the Father, according to chapter 2, verse 18. That's His work. We can now pray to God because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals and enables God's people to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, and we will see it in chapter 6. The Holy Spirit unites us together in Christ and leads us to maturity in Him. Think about chapter 2, verse 22. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Or think about chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, particularly verses 3 and 4. It is the Holy Spirit that unites us together in the bond of peace. And so we pursue that together. We grow in maturity and help one another to grow. Never once are ecstatic emotions or miraculous gifts mentioned. Just look at chapter 3. Verses 14 through 19. Please turn to chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. I want you to see this. This is why Paul prays. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? So that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. God strengthens us through the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That is growth in assurance of faith so that we might reach maturity in Christ. Now, if assurance and maturity is the goal and the primary objective of the Holy Spirit, which I would argue that it is, then that explains the command, do not get drunk with wine. All right? This is, again, a continuation of verses 15 through 17. You notice the connection there. And we are to walk in wisdom, and we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Our walk, our Christian lives, are meant to be distinct from the world. God has so saved us, so changed us, so transformed us, so united us together so that people ought to be able to look at us and see by our lives that we are different than the world. And that includes everything we do and everything we imbibe, right? Every aspect of our lives is meant to be done for the glory of God. This is why we are not to be controlled by anything. Now, I I just have to say this. This do not get drunk with wine. Don't try to read this minimalistically like, okay, I I can't get drunk with wine, so I can get drunk on beer or I can get drunk on alcohol. You know, uh, I I can get drunk on anything else or or I can use any other mind-bending, right, just uh, numbing substance. It doesn't matter what it is as long as it's not wine. That's not his point. Okay? That's not it. This would include pot. This would include inhalants. This would include any, any mind-affecting, behavioral-affecting substance that you can put into your body and maybe even into your mind. So maybe, maybe this has some ramification for you ladies. If you, like, get all, like, super emotional watching Lifetime movies, maybe you need to cut that out of your life. I don't know. I I don't know. But anyway... (laughs) Uh, anything that would affect our ability to control our thoughts, emotions, or actions 
are to be lawfully moderated. Okay, so if the law says no, that means no. And if the law doesn't say no, then you need to do so carefully. You need to do so wisely. You need to do so in a way that it does not bring reproach upon Christ. It's not about what you can do, what you can get away with. It's not about, okay, how far is too far? What's my limit? How much can I handle, right? What's the extreme that I can go to and still be okay? What is permissible for me? That's never, ever the point of the Christian faith. It is what is beneficial, right? What is going to bring glory to God? What is going to seek my ultimate good and the good of my brothers and sisters? That is what I can do. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you can't drink. But you have to carefully question, wisely question, why am I asking this question about what I can do or how much I can do or whatever. It gets at the heart of what I'm about. Regardless, we are to not be controlled by anything. Instead of being controlled by substances that lead us to unhindered, uninhibited actions or thoughts or emotions, we are to be controlled, we are to be influenced, we are to be filled with the Spirit. Right? Getting drunk or getting high, it leads to debauchery. That is reckless, immoral behavior. Alcohol makes a person mindless so that he acts upon any thought, any, any emotion, any passion, any desire without restraint. It impairs his judgment and it leads him further and further into sin. Well, friends, that is the opposite of what the Holy Spirit does. The exact opposite. A drunk person loses his true personality. Instead of relaxing him so that his personality kind of shines and begins to show, no, it actually does the opposite. It it debases him to the level of a carnal, passion-filled beast. He becomes more of an animal than he does a human. And so for all of his unconstrained pleasure that he would pursue, he can't remember a thing. And sure, he might escape just for a moment into mindless, mind-numbing joy and pleasure-seeking for that moment. But when he comes to his senses, he's filled with regret. He's filled with shame. That's not to be the case for us. Because we don't turn to alcohol or any mind-numbing substance for joy. We're not going to find it there. Not true joy. Don't be deceived by the gimmick that it is a happy hour. It's not. Whatever value you think that you can obtain through them, understand that the Holy Spirit can bring you more. So don't get drunk on the world. Be filled with Him. Being filled with the Spirit is the opposite of being filled with wine. Instead of there being a loss of control or uninhibited enthusiasm or emotion like a staggering, slurring drunkard, 
Those who are filled with the Spirit are filled with joy that comes from an active, self-controlled mind that delights in right and true thoughts about Christ. They express wisdom and discernment, and they live lives that are characterized by holiness and by joy in the Lord and in His truth and beauty that overflows in our hearts with joy and with gladness and with thanksgiving that is expressed in worship-filled obedience. Is the opposite. Do you see them as completely contradictory? And instead of needing to limit or moderate its uses like that of alcohol, Christians are called to continually desire more and more and more and more of the Spirit's work in your lives. You can't get enough. More assurance that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. More maturity as we seek to become more like Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now before I move on, I just need to say a few more things about this command specifically. This is be filled with the Spirit, right? It it is in the present tense It's in the passive voice, and it's plural. You see, sometimes grammar and syntax can really, really, really help your interpretation. And if you get this right, then you get what the the meaning right. But if you get it wrong, then you start imposing your own meaning, your own desired meaning on it. It's plural. Okay, It's plural because it's meant for all Christians everywhere. Right? He's giving the command, you all, church... Be filled with the Spirit. He's not saying this is limited to those super spiritual, above all reproach, autonomous individual Christians who have this special temporary experience in their lives or they manifest it in some miraculous sort of way. They speak in tongues, they heal or whatever. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying this is for you all. You all, all you all be filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, it's in the present. Well, let me, let me do the other one first. It's passive. What that means is that you cannot name it and claim it. It is not yours. It is done upon you. It says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, not fill yourselves with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So what that means there is that it's not, this is accomplished by the work of God, not by those who just happen to pray in the, just the right way or they just claim it for themselves. I claim, I command you, Holy Spirit, to work in this way or, or that they just have enough faith. That's not what it means. This is a work of God in our lives that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Christ, right? When we heard the gospel, the word of truth, and believed in Christ, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I didn't do that. God did that. Whereas we saw in chapter 3, or chapter 4, but chapter 3, being filled with the Spirit God is the one strengthening us with power through His Spirit for maturity, that we might become like Christ. 
Being filled with the Spirit is a work that God does in our lives. Be filled, not fill yourself. And then third, it's in the present tense. Now, we are filled with the Holy Spirit at our conversion, but that filling is ongoing. It's continual. It's perpetual. Everywhere present, right? So from this moment to this moment to this moment, be filled with the Spirit. He's saying, have this ongoing, continual desire. Show, uh, it should be your daily longing to see the Holy Spirit at work in your lives. There should be this continual, perpetual thirst, a continual desire to grow in assurance and maturity. That's what he's saying. Be filled with the Spirit. Long to evidence the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Every moment of every day. So now we're left with how do we do that, right? It's always a question that we come to. How do we put ourselves in the place of being filled if it's a passive, but it is a command, right? So there's something that we need to do to put ourselves there. So what do we do? We'll look carefully at the text again. We're going to do, we're going to, I want you to hold your finger there because we're going to look at this and then we're going to flip. So just be ready to flip. Verses 18 through 20 says, And do not get drunk with the wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now look at what it says there. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to, the, in the, to, the, to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep your finger there and flip to the right to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Just a few pages. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now look at this. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Wait, I just heard that in Ephesians chapter 5. Now I'm hearing it here in Colossians chapter 3. What's different? How do they compare? Well, in Ephesians you have be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians you have... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, the Holy Spirit authored the word of Christ. And so, Paul is not slighting him by making this connection. How are you to be filled with the Spirit? How are Spirit-filled Christians not to be drunk on the world, but to grow in mature, assurance and maturity? By letting the word of Christ dwell, live in you richly. If the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then the living and active word of Christ is to dwell within us so that we might teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So there's your application. That's where you go from there. This is what you do. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So much more can be said, but we got to keep going. So the first way we recognize a spirit-filled Christian is that spirit-filled Christians do not get drunk on the world, but they grow in assurance and maturity in Christ. Second, the second characteristic of a spirit-filled Christian is that they sing from their hearts to God and each other. Ralph Martin, in his book, Worship in the Early Church, said that the Christian church was born in song. 
Spirit-filled followers of Christ sing. We are a singing people. Have you ever wondered why that is, why we gather together and we always sing? Well, it's because the truth and beauty of God and His plan of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, is too glorious to be conveyed only by mere statements. There's something about prose that cannot capture it. You know, this is my biggest difficulty as a preacher, that I am called to get up here and expound the Word of God in such a way as to lift our gaze up to see the glory and the wonder and the majesty and the wisdom and the awe and the perfection of God and His work for us in Jesus Christ. I have to do this week after week after week, and I am woefully inadequate to do this. I can only raise my voice so much. I can only use eloquent words so much to describe the glory of Christ. God must do a work in us apart from my abilities and my weakness and my foolishness to be able to do what I cannot. And so I have to plead every single week that God would do that. Now, don't get me wrong. Preaching and teaching are essential. They are commanded by Christ, by God, for the edification and the building up of the maturity of Christians. There is no faith. There is no coming to faith apart from the preached word. But, guys, so many times it just feels lacking. I just feel lacking in what I have to do. And I sit in my basement, and I pray, and I pray, and I pray. And I get frustrated, and I'm even talking to the people here before the service begins, and I'm saying, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm getting up here, and I'm not ready. There's too much here. I don't know what to do. It's amazing that God would give us this ability. But again, trying to describe the incomprehensible with words Sometimes lacking. Sometimes it's just hard to put the truth of God together with the affections of the heart and the work that that truth has done in overflowing and welling up and changing our souls, changing our lives, changing our, our very essence. And so sometimes we just have to express it in song. When saying I love you is not enough. We turn to song. This is why we sing. The truth and beauty of Christ is too glorious for just mere, abstract, conceptual, intellectual statements. You have to sing. And one of the results of this ongoing desire to be filled with the Spirit is that we sing the truth about God from our hearts, both to God and to each other. Be filled with the Spirit, verse 9, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts. Now this passage teaches us a whole theology of singing. It is huge. I'm trying to summarize this succinctly. And uh, first of all, I just have to say, notice here how singing is to be congregational. 
we are to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, our singing is not just vertical. We don't just sing to the Lord. We sing to each other, right? It's horizontal and vertical. When we sing, we speak the truth in love to one another through song. Now, what Paul doesn't mean when he says that, that you are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, mean that we actually have to physically turn to one another and look at one another in the eyes and sing something like, I love you with the love of the Lord. Have you ever done that before? Anything like that? Is that just me, right? Or or in the Baptist camp, right? You're going around, you're shaking everybody's hand. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You've done it, right? I've got some more there, right? Awkward. It's awkward, isn't it? You feel dumb. And it completely contradicts what Paul's getting at here because he's still like, I'm telling you I love you, but man, I'm showing with every aspect of my being that I feel really uncomfortable and I don't love you. Right? It just completely misses the point. No, that's not what he's saying here. uh, No, what Paul's getting at is that our congregational singing unifies our voices together around one message that we proclaim together both to God and to each other. So congregational singing allows our minds and our hearts and our voices to be joined together in one unified message to declare the glory of God. And as we proclaim it together in song, we proclaim it not just to God, but to each other. You see, it's not just singing to exalt Christ, but it is singing for mutual edification, for building one another up. This is why we are to address one another in this way. And this has huge implications for what we do when we gather. Huge implications. There's too many to even cover. But what it means, first of all, is that singing is not about isolated self-expression. That what I want to do when I come to a worship service is I want to just close my eyes and I want to raise my hands, and I just want to draw a circle around myself. And I want to pretend like I'm the only person in the room right now. It's just me and Jesus. It's just you and me right now. It's just you and me right now. That's a contradiction to what this passage says. It turns it on its head. Even in the second half of the verse, where it focuses on the vertical aspect of our worship... We are to sing and make melody to the Lord. Our words and our affections of our hearts making melody to Christ. It says that we do so in your plural heart singular. Now Paul didn't just make a grammatical mistake there. He does this over and over and over again. I don't even know how many times I didn't add them up, but I'm planning on putting out a blog entry at some point that kind of covers Paul's use of the plural and the singular. But what he's getting at there is that you all, as you sing with all of your might, with all of your soul of the glories of the Lord, and you're praising Him for it, and you're seeking to exalt the name of Christ in all that you do, you do it in one shared, unified heart. You do it together. 
One of our beloved verses, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We are to offer our bodies, plural, as one living sacrifice. What we saw in chapter 2, verse 10. We, plural, are God's single workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, it's never just about me. Never, ever just about me. So when we sing, we sing together. We sing with one heart. We don't draw a circle around ourselves. No, our singing is meant to be both vertical and horizontal. We are singing to unify our hearts and our minds and our voices around one single message that we proclaim back to God and to each other in one heart. And so then that means that it cannot be about our preferences. It's not about the style of music that I prefer or singing all of my favorite songs to the neglect of everyone else around me. I have to be careful about what I sing and why I sing it and why we sing it together. They don't, so we can't come in and we say, you know what, I, they don't play a piano. They don't sing from a hymnal. They, so I'm just going to skip that aspect of our time together and just come for the message. Some people do that. Some people are tempted to do that. It's not my style. I'm going to do something else. Or maybe they're on the other side. You know what? They don't lower the lights. There's no drum set, right? The, the songs, they really aren't dynamic enough to really, really get me going and just kind of well up my heart and, and kind of get me moving. And they, they sing these, wor- these songs with all of these words. There's just so many words. And it's just wordy, wordy, wordy that I actually have to think about when I'm singing. I can't just sing and I can't just, just close my eyes and praise God. I just want something that's a little bit more repetitive. So I'm going to go somewhere else. That's a complete contradiction of this passage. That's not what it's about. I mean, how spirit-filled is that? We are to address one another and make melody to the Lord. It is not about you. And refusing to unite your hearts in song with other believers is to exalt yourself above your brothers and sisters in Christ and to exalt yourself actually above Christ himself and to take what is meant to be a means of grace and a means of service and a means of mutual edification and to turn it on its head and make it a means of self-glorification because it's all about me. Guys, do not be deceived by this. You want to know what God desires in our singing? God desires richness. Our, our songs are meant to reflect the richness of God. So there has to be this richness of truth, of this deep, solid doctrine that proclaims accurately who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And there must be a richness in affections. 
That our hearts must be stirred by this truth so that we long to live in a different way. We want to sing with all our hearts. It's not just intellectual, right? We're not just mindlessly miming words, apathetically singing songs when we gather here just with our hearts and our minds in all other places. We must work to labor to prepare our hearts, to prepare our affections, to set them together on Christ so that we sing richly from our mind, from our hearts. So if our singing is to be pleasing to the Lord and give grace to those who hear, which we've already established that it's meant to do both, our heart affections have to be stirred and go out both to God and to his people singing with you. We praise God and we address one another in songs by singing the truth in love. That both truth and love must be held out, both vertically and horizontally, in song. This ought to change the way we think about singing. Another thing about congregational aspect of singing, notice the variety here. There's psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, we can't push this too far, all right? But when the New Testament talks about psalms, it's referring to psalms, the book of psalms. Songs, those are songs, psalms means songs, that were sung by the Israelites. And so he's probably referring to that. When he says hymns, he's talking about these extended songs of praise that were written by the early church for the edification, for the building up of the church. So these these hymns are actually new songs written by the apostles, the prophets, other Christians who were there in the time. We have pieces and fragments of them in our New Testament. So like Philippians chapter 2, for example, or uh, was it uh, uh, 2 Timothy 1, maybe? Um, Anyway, don't quote me on that. But basically, we have these fragments that are there that are these hymns that were sung by the early church. And then you have spiritual songs. What are those? Well, they might be they might actually be sort of almost extemporaneous, spirit-led new songs that were come up with on the spot. The Spirit just kind of led people and directed them towards that end. If nothing else, it's at least a new song, according to Revelation uh, 14 and 15. So you've got this, this variety some straight from Scripture, some taking the truth about Scripture to bear and, and to proclaim it in a new way. Some songs are old. Some songs are new. It doesn't really matter. What matters there is richness, diversity, complexity, truth. It doesn't matter what instrument that is used, but does it proclaim the truth and beauty of God for the edification of the whole church? Again, Worship wars miss the point here. It doesn't matter what type of instrument is used, whether or not it comes bound in a book that sits in a pew, or whether it was written in the last 10 years or even in the last 10 months. That doesn't matter. What matters is, does it truthfully and faithfully and richly proclaim the truth about God for the building up of the church? That is what matters. That's what we're longing for in the songs that we sing. This is why we sing wordy songs. This is why we sing Jesus paid it all. And this is why we're singing spirituals. Give me Jesus. Right? And there's beauty in both. 
the song is rich in truth and good for the building up of the body, it doesn't matter whether we sing it to a pipe organ, whether we sing it to a guitar, whether you sing it to a sitar and tabla drums. Now, it does need to be done reverently, respectfully, in honor to the Lord. And so there are some things that that would exclude, I think. But on the whole, if we're seeking truth, if we're seeking affection, it, it shouldn't really matter if we're singing, you know, um, Mighty Fortress is our God to a pipe organ, or if we're singing Jesus Loves Me, a cappella in the middle of the jungle in India. It's all for the glory of God. Now, I do need to say this as well. All of your favorite old hymns were once brand new praise songs, right? 200 years ago, they were brand spanking new. And you know what? All of the traditionalists in the church in that day hated them, right? They hated them. I can't believe we're singing this song. This is not a hymn. This is completely irreverent. This is a brand new praise song. Are you going to be like that? When you come to a worship service, you're going to be like that, right? We're on the other end, right? You like singing new songs. Let me ask you this. Is that new song that you love to sing so much, is that rich enough in truth and mutual edification that the church will be singing it in 200 years? You've got to ask yourself that, right? Don't despise those songs that have stood the test of time and yet after centuries can still bless our souls. So regardless of preferences, spirit-filled Christians sing with joyful hearts to God and to one another. Now perhaps you're saying, sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I, I don't have joy in my heart right now. I don't. It's like, I know that this is what I should be, that I should be welled up this way, have all of these affections stirred right now for the truth and beauty of Christ, but I don't, I don't feel anything. Well, if that's you, my encouragement to you is to contemplate carefully the words that we're singing. Think about them deeply. Pray that that truth that they contain would penetrate your hearts and sing with a longing. John Piper once said that worship is not only spirit-filled or authentic when we are red-hot for God. He says it can mean that when you are not red-hot, your heart feels a longing for the passion that you once knew or that you want more of. That longing offered to God is also worship. Or it can mean remorse, that even the longing is gone and you can scarcely able to feel anything but sadness, that you don't feel what you should, that remorse offered to God is also worship. It says to God that he is the only hope for what you need. And so don't have this all or nothing attitude about worship. The heart can be real even if it is not inflamed with zeal as it ought to be, which it never truly is in this life. And so in spirit-dependent faith, let us sing to God and to each other from our hearts. Now, I hope that my next two points will come much quicker. Um, Spirit-filled Christians grow in assurance and maturity. They sing from their hearts to God and to each other. And third, 
Spirit-filled Christians give thanks constantly and for everything. Now, being filled with the Spirit results, verse 20, in giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Spirit-filled Christians are characterized by gratitude. They regularly and constantly give thanks. The cross of Jesus Christ has humbled them and has opened our eyes to see our good and wise and sovereign God is working in and through and for all things according in, in each and every situation to accomplish His good and perfect ends for the benefit of his beloved. We recognize that every aspect of our lives is a gift from the Lord, and so spirit-filled Christians are characterized by continual thanksgiving. But not only do they regularly give thanks, they also give thanks for everything. They know that no matter how dire the circumstance, no matter how bad the suffering, no matter the loss, no matter the heartbreak, God is working it out for the good for those who are called by him and love him, are called according to his purpose, and he does it in such a way that he's able to exceed. He does far more abundant than anything that they can ask or think of. And so they trust him, and they thank God for that. No matter what it is, no matter whether it be hardships associated with mankind's fall into sin, there's sickness, there's decay, there's cancer, there's catastrophe, there's death, or whether it was intended by sinful men for evil, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is working together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Christians who have been filled with the Spirit through faith in the saving work of Christ give thanks to the Father in the name of the Son. Now, friends, I say that knowing that that can be hard. I say that knowing that I fail so many times to do that. We endure pain and loss and cruelty, or we just go through life sort of apathetically, but through it all, there's reason to give thanks. And we can stop right now and we can sit and we can look at each and every person's circumstance and we can develop a list of things to be thankful for no matter what your situation is. I'm thankful that I can see. I'm thankful that the sun shines. I'm thankful that I have friends and family and a church. I'm thankful for the word of God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if we just look at the simple message of Ephesians, there's more than enough to stir our hearts towards deep thanksgiving to the Lord. I was dead in my sin. I was enslaved by the world, by the devil, by my own sinful passions. I I lived as a rebel to the God who made me, to the God who sustains me, to the God who has given me everything I have. And I am rightfully condemned under his wrath. But God... Because he's so merciful, because of his great love, even for me, sent his son to live a life that I can never live and to lay down that life for sin, for my sin. 
And because of the work of God, I am now made alive. I'm a new creation. I have been reconciled to God. I've been given a new heart and new affections. I'm a different person as a result of God's work in and through and for me. I've received the Holy Spirit. Christ was raised from the dead, not just to forgive me of my sin, but to give me new life. I am forever reconciled to God. So now there are things that I will never know. I will never know God's wrath against my sin. I will never know his judgment. I will never experience that pain, that separation, that hostility that I so rightly deserve. That is not mine. I am now a beloved son of God. He loves me that much that he sent Christ to do this for me. And so now I have not only this future inheritance as his child, but I have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus now and forever. Guys, that is reason to praise God. We can praise Him. We can give thanks for that. Even if God should chasten me because He loves me, because I'm His Son, I know that I will never experience the pain and the eternal separation of God. There is nothing, not this hardship, not this loss, not this suffering, not this calamity, not the evil that I see in the world, nothing can separate me from His love. Friends, that is reason to give thanks. Praise God for his lavish grace in our lives. And so spirit-filled Christians have reason for continual gratitude for the grace that they've received in Christ. And so we grow in assurance. We sing from our hearts to God and to each other. We give thanks constantly for everything and forth. Spirit-filled Christians Submit to Christ and his church. Now I have to tell you that verse 21 is one of the most hated and twisted passages by self-professing Christians. People who claim to follow Christ do not like this passage and what follows it. But this is God's word for us. And we would do well to listen to it. You see, far from making you some elite, super spiritual, above Approach autonomous Christian who doesn't need the church being filled with the Spirit results in submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit here literally means to arrange under, to be subordinate to. That is what the word means. I am willingly, because I've been filled with the Spirit, because I long to display the Lordship of Christ in my life, I will gladly arrange myself under those authority structures that the Lord has placed in my life. Those relationships that the Lord has given, I will gladly place myself under them and submit to them in order to display God's wisdom and His power and His glory and His goodness for the world to see, whether that be my submission to God or my submission to Christ or my submission to God's Word or my submission to governing authorities or my submission to the church and to its leaders or what we see as far as the roles and relationships within the home. I will gladly submit myself to them in order to display the goodness and glory of Christ. That's what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. Paul uses that word submit 23 times in his letters to explain God's intended order and authority for his people. God is the one who put these authority structures in place. 
right? Those who are filled with the Spirit gladly submit themselves to these authority structures by faith. As we've been working our way through Ephesians, just chapter 2 through 4, we've seen over and over again that it was God's eternal plan to reveal His wisdom, power, and glory through the church. Not through a bunch of individual Christians, but through the church. Them collected together, them submitting to one another, them growing in maturity in Christ together. As Christians, we are not only united to Christ through faith, but we are also united to each other, his body, his church, and we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that union that we have with Christ and with each other is meant to be displayed within the context of a local church that is taught and governed by the leaders that according to chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Christ himself has gifted to the church. This verse then calls us to submit to that structure of a local church and its leaders. Now some people want to try to redefine that word submit, or redefine this phrase, submit to one another. And they change it, they twist it into a unilateral, reciprocal, voluntary commitment to serve one another. Okay, so we're all on the same plane, we're all equals, we're just volunteering to gather together to serve one another. So I serve you, and you serve me, and you serve that person over there, and so on and so on it goes. That's how they want to define that. Well, there's problems with that interpretation just in Ephesians. Now, let me just say this, that is absolutely true. What they said there about this mutual service, absolutely true. The problem is it's just not the whole truth. So if we submit, if submit means unilateral, reciprocal, voluntary, mutual service, what, you, what do you do then with these roles of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher that you see in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13? What do you do with it? Here's what you have to do with it. You have to say that everybody is one or more of those things. So we go around the room. Apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, teacher. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And so on and so forth. That's what you have to do if you're going to be consistent. Right? That doesn't work though. That's not what it says. But look there in what follows in chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. If submission means unilateral, reciprocal, voluntary, mutual service, then not only do wives submit to their husbands, but husbands submit to their wives. Now, that sounds fair, but again, what does the text say? Keep reading. Read carefully. If that's the way that we understand it, then it means that the church is to submit to Christ, but that Christ must also submit to the church. Now, is that consistent at all with what we see in Scripture? Is Jesus not Lord? Is it not always the case that the church is to submit to Christ? Right? He is Lord. He is the authority. He is the head. And so then you have to reinterpret what it means for Christ to be the head. Christ can't be the head as far as the authority, the leader, the director, the one who is over the church. You have to turn it into Christ is now the source of the church. And the church, like a river, can flow away from its head. Now that is scary. 
That is really, really scary. Because that means that Jesus is changing, Christ is changing, the Lord is changing. And he has to change because of our whims and our direction and our leadership. But keep going, right? That's the case in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Not only are children to submit to their parents' discipline and instruction, but then parents would then have to submit to their children's discipline and instruction. Now, my kids would love this for, to be true, but it ain't going to happen. It's just not true. We're in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves must obey their earthly masters. Well, if we're going to look at it reciprocally, then masters must obey their slaves. Now, we know... Again, we'll deal with this in the future, but we know that that's clearly not the case. That's not how it worked out. That's not what the text says. Now, spirit-filled Christians are to submit to those who are in authority over them. And they do this, why? Out of reverence for Christ. They trust Christ. They trust his wisdom, his goodness, his provision for them. They know that they can look to him in faith and that he is good and they want to obey him. They recognize his lordship, his rule, his power, his holiness, and they want to display that with their lives and with their relationships. And so they obey Christ by submitting to and serving in local expressions of his church, his body, his bride. And you have to get this, because this is the implication of this passage. There is no submission to Christ if there is no submission to his church. I'm not being too bold in saying that. Friends, the church was God's idea. It was to display his wisdom. This is his plan to display his glory to the world. It's only as we are being built together by the Spirit that we are able to build one another up towards maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ is not an option apart from the church, according to Ephesians. There is no true assurance. There is no full maturity. There is no being filled with the Spirit apart from our obedient submission and service in the church. Now, if you question that, Again, I want to say, go back and carefully read chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, 16. And remember this. It was God's idea. It was God's idea to put the church, Christ's body, Christ's bride, with Christ at the center of all of history. This is not my opinion. I am not making this up. My life would be infinitely easier, not infinitely, but dramatically easier if this was not true. But it is. But what I really want you to see, or I hope that you can see, is that God did this for your good. The church was designed for your good. I know it's messy, I know it's hard, I know it's inconvenient, but it's for your good. Now there's so much more that could be said about any one of these. So much more. But Paul has left us with this command. Be filled with the Spirit. 
And this is what it looks like. And so how do we, knowing that the Spirit blows wherever He will, how do we then fan into flame this gift of God? How do we do that? How do we strive to become Spirit-filled Christians? Well, we do so by not drinking deeply of the world, but instead growing in assurance and maturity by letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. We do so by singing from our hearts to God and to each other. We do so by, by striving to give thanks constantly and for everything. And we do so by submitting to Christ and His church. Friends, it is my prayer for all of us that we would continually long for, thirst after this filling of the Spirit. He is ours. He is in us. And I pray that it would be evident in our lives that we are those who have been filled with the Spirit. That's the driving point. That's what this all has climaxed towards so far in Ephesians. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I pray for conviction um, this morning. I pray that where we might have misunderstandings or misgivings or just be confused about what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, being filled with the Spirit, that there would be clarity there. But that we would see the work of this Holy Spirit in our lives in such a way that we respond to these things that we would lose that desire for the world, but rather be enraptured and long for more and more and more of the Spirit, growing in assurance and maturity. I pray that we would long to sing and long to dwell uh, richly in, with your word richly dwelling within us. I, I pray that we would recognize just how much we've been given and be thankful, and that we would trust you and submit ourselves out of reverence, out of uh, honor for Christ by actively participating and getting involved and plugged into a local church. Father, convict us. Change our hearts. Help us to desire Christ above all else. And we pray this for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.